And so today, the last psalm in our series is Psalm 63. Turn, if, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 63. We like to start with the historical situation, and that's found in the superscription to the psalm. And this we simply read, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David was in the wilderness uh, of Judah twice in his life. Uh, Once when he was a young man fleeing Saul, the king of Israel, who wanted to kill him because he was jealous of David. And actually, David spent a lot of time in the wilderness because it was uh, over the period of years that Saul was trying to get him. But then he becomes king, and uh, he, he lives for the most part in Jerusalem. He reigned for 40 years. But somewhere towards the end of his reign, his own son, Absalom, rebels against him and tries to, tries to take power. And during that period, David and those loyal to him have to flee from Jerusalem, and they go to the wilderness of Judah until they can regroup and uh, fight and defeat Absalom's army and take back the throne. It is probably this second latter time in David's life that gives rise to the psalm. And, and the reason I think that is verse 11, we read, but the king shall rejoice in God. And in the first wilderness wanderings, he was not king yet, right? But he was king in this later episode of his life. In addition, I see in this psalm uh, reflections of a mature faith. Uh, I, I, it seems to me that the person writing this psalm is some, someone who has walked with the Lord for a long time, and the psalm reflects this, a maturity, uh, and, and sort of a, 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 a more heavenly-mindedness. One thing you'll note in this psalm when we read it is there's no real appeal. Unlike the younger Jonathan or David who is saying, you know, God, save me, destroy my enemies, vindicate me. Here the only appeal that is made is just, God, I need you. And there just seems to be this complete assurance that as long as God is with David, then everything is going to work out fine. And so let's read Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. 
they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. I think verse 3 best encapsulates the heart of this psalm. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Think of the enormity of that statement. God, your steadfast love is better than life. Can we say that? How do we get there? See, I think David has been walking with the Lord for decades, and he has experienced God's steadfast love rescuing him for those who wish to kill him, forgiving him when he was a murderer and an adulterer. He's been disciplined by the Lord, but the Lord just is relentless in his love toward David and brings him through all of that. And he's gotten to a point where in life where he says, your steadfast love is better than life. And this, I believe, is much bigger than the Romeo-Juliet love that says... If I don't have you in my life, I would just like to die. I think this is David saying, what you offer me, God, uh, the love, uh, the life that I have in you is so much bigger, so much better, so much more significant than, than this temporary life that I live here on earth. He's making a comparison. The life that I have in the love of God is better, more significant, more substantial than the life that I have just here on earth. In Colossians chapter 3, and, and I've been hitting this quite often, but it's such an important truth for us to get. We're, we're told this, listen, Christians, by, you know, by faith we have been raised with Christ, we have died with Christ, and here's what we read, your life Christian, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what Paul's saying is, Christian, you've got to understand who's the real you. The real you is, is not just the material, the, the you who lives in this temporary material world. The real you is hidden with Christ. In God, and when Christ returns at his second coming, the real you will be revealed in all of your glory. See, there is no doubt in my mind that David uh, believed in eternity. And so when he says here, your steadfast love is better than life, he's, he's thinking about all that he has in, for eternity in, in his relationship with God. And it, it makes the this world seem... Um, pale by comparison, and seem insignificant. I want to get there, don't you? I want to get to a point where I can just say, God, your steadfast love is better than life. Every Christian martyr has made that statement. When somebody tells them, you recant your faith in God, or we will kill you, and the Christian says, I'm not willing to give God up. I am willing to give this life up in order to gain life everlasting. They're saying just what David said. God, your steadfast love is better than life. 
Well, because David values God's love more than he values this life, his soul thirsts for God. There, one way that you can divide this psalm is by the three my soul statements. In verse 1, my soul thirsts for you. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. And verse 8, my soul clings to you. And so that's the structure for our message today. Let's look at these my soul statements. Number one, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so David is wandering around in a desert. The wilderness of Judah is not like the Nancy Lakes canoe system, which we were on uh, Friday, Saturday. Lots of water there. But no, his, uh, the wilderness of Judah is a desert. And I think that David is experiencing physical thirst, and he's thinking, you know what? If I don't get water out here, I'd die pretty fast. And then he draws the parallel and says, you know what? If I don't have God... My soul's going to die. I need God the way I need this water. And you know, that's a good thing. Because when we feel our need for God acutely, then we follow after him uh, powerfully. But if we are not aware of your need for God, if you're a comfortable Christian and you don't thirst for God, then you're, you're not going to be seeking him and pursuing him. And good things happen to us spiritually when we thirst for God. It's one of the reasons that we're told that trials are actually often a good thing for us. In James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers. Put a smile on your face when you meet trials of various kinds. And we're like, what? Makes no sense. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And so when we're, when we're in hard times, it quickens our thirst for God. It gives us an appetite for the Lord because we're like, man, I have got to have God right now showing up in my life. And so we pursue after Him, and that's a good thing. But maybe you're you're reading this and you're thinking, man, I'm not thirsting for God like David. My flesh isn't fainting for God. I'm not feeling like if I don't have God, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to die. How do I get that? Good things happen spiritually when we thirst for the Lord. And so you're saying, but I'm not thirsting. Do I have to go through something super hard <laughs> in order to thirst? Well, that is one um, technique I think God employs in our lives. But I don't think you have to be, I don't think the wheels of your life have to come off in order for you to thirst for the Lord. I think there are some things that we can do uh, to, to awaken that thirst. So here are some ideas. Number one, why don't you take a risk for God? Do something that puts you in a position where you're like, God, if you don't come, up, uh, come through, I am sunk. You know, I'm very glad that um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, faith risks I've taken was when I was 40, planting this church. And I, you know, put, we put ourselves in a position where, God, if you don't come through, you know, we're not, we're not going to have an income. <laughs> it was that 
direct. You've got to show up. And so there are, take a risk, share your faith with someone at work or in your family or do something that's risky to where you are in a position where you've, God's got to show up or you're sunk. Well, that will awaken a thirst for the Lord in your life. Another idea is to hang out with people in need. When you hang out ministering to people who are themselves thirsting for the Lord and desperate for God to show up in your life, well, it kind of it rubs off on you. You become aware. You know what? That could happen to me. I need God the same way they need God. And a third idea is to declare your dependence upon the Lord. And this is something that I practice regularly. I can't encourage it highly enough. And so often I will say, um, God, uh, things right now in my life are going smoothly. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. But you know what? I am as dependent upon you right now as I've ever been. Even though life is kind of going smoothly, the fact of the matter is I need you as much now as I ever have and ever will. In you, I live and move and have my being. Apart from you, I can do nothing. God, I need you to help me say no to the temptations of the world. I need you to help me be a good husband, a good father, a good son. I need, I need you to empower me to lead your church well. I desperately need you. And I declare that even right now. Now, my theory, and I could be totally wrong, but my theory is maybe I won't need to go through so many hard times if I can keep myself thirsty for God even when life is relatively smooth. I haven't found that in Scripture. That's just my theory. Well, here's the good news. David is thirsting for something, and his thirst can be satisfied. People are thirst for things. We all thirst for something. Uh, But there's a lot of stuff out there people thirst for that will not satisfy them. They're thirsting for money. They thirst for power. They thirst for fame. They thirst for revenge. They thirst for recognition. They're thirsting for the corner office, and on and on it goes. And then we've all heard those many stories of the people who they finally get there, and then they say, "What is what? the gold medal didn't satisfy me. I, I worked so hard. I put so much of my life into getting here, and now I'm still just as unsatisfied as I ever was. But when you thirst for God, that's a thirst that will be satisfied. In fact, as Pascal said, you know, we all have a God-shaped void, and we're trying to fill that with something other than God, but that God-shaped void will only be filled with God. You can only be soul-satisfied when you are feasting on God. Him who truly satisfies. And so we come to verse 5. David has said, My soul thirsts for you, O God. Now in verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I'll be satisfied as if I have just sat down and gorged at a banquet. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So what is it that satisfies David's soul? Thinking about God. Considering who God is. When I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, 
During the watches of the night, you're supposed to be sleeping. David's awake. Why? Because the pressure's on, man. Absalom is actively trying to find him so he can kill him. David's got hundreds of people he's responsible for in the desert. And in addition to just how am I going to survive, he's also got the weight of the fact that it's his son who has rebelled against him. Can you imagine the heartache? My own son is trying to kill me. And I'm sure David has got guilt, struggling with a sense of personal responsibility. He, you know, he could have, some of this is due to his own choices, his own failures as a father. A few years earlier, Absalom had killed his own brother, and David didn't discipline Absalom the way he should have. And so I'm sure there's a whole lot on David's mind and heart during the watches of the night that are keeping him awake. But what gives him satisfaction? It's meditating upon God. Verses 2 and 3, we get a glimpse about what exactly he's thinking about. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. The word here for look upon is not your typical word for just eyesight. It's, uh, it's a word that's usually often refers to a, like a vision, a prophetic vision. So David is, is on his bed, and he's, he's, he's envisioning God and who God is, and he's thinking about God's power and God's glory and how God has loved him so steadfastly. In verse 7, we're told, you have been my help. He's thinking about how God is, has been so faithful to him throughout his life. Verses 9 and 10, he's, he's reminded that at the end, God is going to enact justice. His purposes will come a pass. And as, da- as David thinks about God, he, his soul is satisfied. He's calmed down, right? He, he has peace. I can't help but that, uh, think about that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. One of the best things you can do when... The, the horizontal, the, the life in front of you is going crazy, is to look up. And that's one of the best things you can do for your friends, too, is just take their chin and lift it up. Look at God. Why don't you think about God and his power, his glory, his love, his faithfulness to you? And when we do that, all of a sudden, God looms large, and the, and the problems of the world just sort of seem a lot smaller, a lot more manageable and our soul is satisfied. I'm thirsting for God. My soul is satisfied. And now the statement about the future. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Two sides to the faith coin. David's responsibility, cling to God. God's responsibility, hold David up. Can't help but think of uh, the time when my girls were young and, and I'd be 
they'd reach for me, I'd scoop them up, they'd wrap their arms around my neck, they're clinging to me, but I'm doing all the work, right? I'm holding them up. All they have to do is cling to me, let me know, Dad, I need you, take care of me. That's our responsibility, cling to God. He does all the work, he upholds us, but we cling to him. And you, you cling to only one thing at a time. If you're uh, on, a, on a rock face, you only get one handhold at a time. And so when David clings to God, he's choosing not to cling to his military uh, genius. He's choosing not to cling to the fact that he's got battle-hardened soldiers. He's choosing not to cling to uh, the fact that he's got uh, someone in Absalom's camp feeding him bad intel and giving him bad advice. He's choosing not to cling to the possibility that maybe one of the Gentile nations will come to his help, to his aid. He's clinging to God. When life is uh, going hard... We will cling to something. We'll cling to someone. We all have a choice. Will we cling to God? My soul clings to you. And then you don't let go. And how many, how many times have I encountered people who they were Christians, they went to church, and then something went hard in their lives and they went, let go of God and clunk to something else, and they just sort of went off into the weeds spiritually. And here's David saying, you're my only hope. I'm clinging to you, and I'm going to cling to you from here until you take me home. And that's what a Christian does. We're not in it for the short time. We're in it for life, and we, God is our only hope. Are you in a hard time right now? Are you clinging to God? He's the one who has the power to uphold you. He wants to hold you up. I want to conclude with the final verse, and actually with the last line of the final verse. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Well, that's interesting. What an interesting way to end. The mouths of liars will be stopped. But I think you got to remember that Absalom has engaged in a uh, propaganda campaign in Israel, and he's spreading the word that God has um, washed his hands of David, that God is angry with David, has removed his favor from David, and has now uh, placed it upon Absalom, that, that Absalom is God's new choice to be king. And I'm sure they were validating it with, look, if God were with David, he wouldn't be hanging out in the wilderness of Judah. He would be on the throne of Jerusalem. His circumstances are bad, which must prove that God is against him. And that is the lie of the enemy. When life gets hard and we're in the trial, the enemy wants to feed you this line that God doesn't care about you. If God didn't care about, if God cared about you, this wouldn't be happening to you. So obviously, God must not love you. 
And that is a lie. Your circumstances have nothing to do with how much God loves you. If you read the Bible, uh, men and women who, who obviously were uh, God's favorites so often went through very difficult times. Do not make the, your, your determination of whether or not God is happy with you based on how the, the circumstances of your life are going. It's irrelevant. God loves you because you are his in Christ Jesus, period. And so you cling to him no matter what your situation, and he'll uphold you. For David, God's decided to put him back on the throne, and so he got to die as king. We don't know what God's future for us is, other than the fact that when Christ returns, our future is eternity with him in heaven.